You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. I'm Raven Rollins, a legal researcher and PI. And I am Mandy McNeely, a professor of psychology, victimology, and domestic violence. We're going to talk about um, a doctor from Oklahoma City and his wife. His name is Dr. John Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton was an OBGYN doctor who had privileges at several different Oklahoma City hospitals, one of which I worked at. I had was an office manager for a doctor and would see him in the doctor's lounge on several occasions. So 1980s, there's a quote by a, I believe he is a friend of the family, Wes Lane. He says, it was huge. It had all the appeal of a romance novel gone bad. It was the high society doctor married to the beautiful wife. And they were apparently absolutely crazy about one another. So that high society doctor was Dr. John Hamilton, who was an OBGYN, who in addition to his regular practice, he also ran an abortion clinic that in conservative Oklahoma, uh, you know, sometimes would it probably would have brought him some unwelcome notoriety. He and his wife, Susan, they met in 1985 at um, a friend's birthday party. Both of them had recently separated John from his first wife and Susan from a man named Dick Horton. We have a quote from Dick Horton. He says, I think the best way to describe her is a woman that always wanted to be a mother. She was proud to be a mother. Even though she had a great education, her passion was to be a good mother. Susan, who was 39, and John, who was 37, they both had two kids from their prior marriages. And friends say that they, when they met each other, they had like this instant connection. Vesta Hall was a nurse in John's clinic. And she says she was beautiful, vivacious, intelligent, just a really neat lady. I told some people at the clinic, I wish I had someone that would look at me the way John looks at Susan. I just felt like they were very happy. Yeah, it's like kind of fairy tale-ish a little bit. So two years after their first date, they got married at a local country club and Dr. Steve Jimerson, who was a colleague of John's, was the best man. He said that he fawned over her a lot. So the doctor and his wife built like this envious lifestyle for themselves, starting with, get this, what did he get her as a wedding gift? A freaking Porsche. He then buys her this big, comfortable, huge-ass house in a top-notch neighborhood. They're always having lavish dinner parties. Spur-of-the-moment vacations. So, okay, apparently this couple was, like, inseparable. And they became even more so after they got married. And they stayed inseparable for the next 14 years. Like, they did everything together. They were best freaking friends. Susan actually managed John's abortion clinic. She was there two days a week. As you might guess, the job came with a little danger. 
there were always anti-abortion protesters that were like right outside doing their thing. Fair enough. Dick Horton who, remember, was her ex-husband, sometimes worried for his ex's safety. He knew that she wasn't easily rattled or intimidated, apparently. He said, I don't think there was any question she wore the pants, and if there was another pair, she'd go get those too. So, if anything, threats against the clinic only seemed to bring the Hamiltons closer together. Steve Jimerson, John's colleague, he said... She was very strongly pro-choice and very, very outspoken about it, about the right of women. They were kind of a unit in that regards, which is pretty dope, actually, if you ask me. This would be their 15th Valentine's Day together. But that Wednesday morning, John arrived home from the hospital and found a horrific scene. Susan was lying beaten and strangled on their bathroom floor. Her head had been bludgeoned surrounded by a pool of blood her face savaged almost unrecognizable Mm. two neckties were knotted around her throat and he frantically calls 911 so by the time that emergency workers arrived it was clear that susan hamilton was dead over the next few hours investigators tried to understand just what happened to Susan Hamilton that Valentine's Day morning. Oklahoma City investigators Teresa Sterling and Randy Scott arrived at the Hamilton house at noon that day. They found a disturbing scene that didn't suit a moneyed neighborhood. Teresa Sterling says it was violent. It was a very violent scene. Randy said the ladies lying in the floor covered in blood, blood all over the floor. It was possible that maybe she was murdered by an anti-abortion zealot? That was like their first theory. If these people are pro-life, they're not going to kill someone. Hello? Just the week before Susan was murdered, this wanted poster had been left for Dr. Hamilton. It said on it, quote, a reward in heaven will be bestowed on anyone contributing to bringing this murderer to justice, end quote. Both John and Susan had received threatening phone calls that week. Steve Jimerson said, I was afraid for his safety. There were things done that were dangerous. I mean, trying to set fire to his clinic, vandalizing his home, putting brochures all over the neighborhood and his kids' school that said, quote, wanted dead or alive. Only days before the murder, another anti-abortion group had applied for a permit to stage a protest outside of the Hamilton's house. So Teresa Sterling... Uh, one of the investigators, she said, I interviewed those people. Every avenue was checked. Other little issues about maybe was it a burglary? We checked every avenue of any burglary similar remotely close to the neighborhood, as is routine in domestic murders. The detectives would look at the spouse first, John Hamilton himself. In this case, though, the spouse had an alibi and a good one. He had woke up at the butt crack of dawn, because he's a freaking surgeon. He had gone in for a 7 a.m. surgery at an outpatient clinic, which was over by 8 a.m. And afterwards, he stopped by the hospital where he had another procedure around 8.30. 
he bumped into his former medical par- partner, Dr. Karen Resig. She said, I had gone into the doctor's lounge to dictate the pr- procedure and he was in there. He was talking on the phone. He sounded like he was talking to Susan. Just, you know, just a very lighthearted conversation. So she's alive at 8.30. So Randy Scott says he has time to get back to the house because their house is very close. Apparently it's in between two hospitals. So he runs by the house. He was only at home for a few minutes because at 9 a.m. his pager went off and the hospital called him back in for another surgery. By 9.30, he was scrubbing up for the operation, and which was apparently a complicated removal of some sort of tumor, and the procedure went off without a hitch. Steve Jimerson says they all said he was just normal and jovial as he always was. By 10.45, he was on his way home again, which is when he says he discovered Susan in a pool of blood. So the timeline was extremely tight for the doctor to even be considered as a suspect. Which is when he says, this is when he comes in, he looks for his wife, yells for her, can't find her, goes up to the bathroom, the master bathroom, and discovers her body. This is a really tight timeline for him to be considered the person who did this. The timeline, he couldn't have done it this time. Like, this time he came home. Because the timeline of him finding her, like, getting home and then calling 911, he wouldn't have had enough time. So he would have had to have done it the first time he went home. Which was like a 30-minute window, if that. But in between two surgeries. And then he goes back to work after murdering his wife and is totally 100% fine. No blood on him, nothing askew nothing weird so karen resig says i personally don't believe a physician could do a surgery go commit a brutal crime of murder and then go back and do another surgery and be totally in his right mind how how is your adrenaline not just out of freaking control you're literally cutting into a body right after that like you have to be pretty freaking precise for a surgical procedure and no one mentioned that he was like shaky or that there was blood on him or anything was wrong at all. Investigators though, were still not ruling anything out. So apparently the first time he came home, they exchanged Valentine cards. He gave her hers and her flowers and she gave him one. The card had been found inside John's Jaguar. So Susan's message in the card to him said, quote, Obviously, I bought this before last Monday, so I guess maybe they don't seem as appropriate now. But I do love you. Have a good day, Susan. End quote. A neighbor is about to give the cops the dish. Susan's friend, Susan Johnston, the woman next door, had pulled one of the investigators aside and told them that the week before Valentine's Day, Susan Hamilton had confided about problems in her marriage. Susan had noticed that John was getting a lot of cell phone calls. I think she became particularly alarmed when he didn't answer it. And he finally told her that it was a patient and that she was down on her luck and having hard times and he was just helping her out. The patient, as Susan discovered, was a stripper at a nightclub. 
Susan demanded to see John's cell phone bill, and when she got a hold of it, her worst fears seemed to be realized. Whoever this woman was, there was way too many calls to and from her. So Randy Scott, the investigator, he says she gets the bill, and upon looking at the bill, she notices huge number, and I'm talking close to a hundred phone calls to this phone, back and forth to John. And she gets very suspicious of it and confronts John about it. John had an explanation for his wife that the patient had been having serious psychological problems and, and had even threatened suicide. John, the good doctor that he was, was simply trying to counsel her and while he may have stepped over his boundaries professionally, he said he never had an affair with her. Susan's friend, for one, believed him and encouraged Susan to do the same. I said, Susan, I don't think it's true. I do not think that John's having an affair. He's crazy about you. You have a good marriage. And I just don't think that it's true. At the end, I think she was calmer and she said, I'm going to think about it. When Susan's ex-husband learned of her murder and the domestic melodrama about the cell phone log, he thought he knew right away what had happened. So Dick said they had to find the stripper because the stripper did it. Dennis Murphy said, because then you know the history of the phone calls. And Dick said, right. And we're thinking that maybe he was having an affair. Maybe he ends up terminating that to save his marriage. And then she decides to eliminate her competition. So this woman's name was Elena Aguar. Elena Aguirre, a topless dancer for eight years, testified she had performed table dances at two of the clubs in Oklahoma City for the doctor. She said that he overpaid her for dances that only cost $20 each. The dancer, also known as Nina, had first went to Dr. Hamilton in the early 90s when she saw him at his office for an abortion. She said he would give her samples of medication she needed for depression when she didn't have any money to buy any of the prescription drugs herself. They met way, 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 way earlier when she went in for an abortion. And then she started seeing him like he ended up being her primary gynecologist. She said that over the course of however many years, he began calling her more and more like personally calling her. And it was to the point where he was actually calling her 10 or more times a day by that time. Later, because he was calling her so much, she decided to write a letter, like with her hand, that he could no longer be her doctor. Because it was, I guess, she felt like it was getting a little... So the dancer said that Hamilton told her that he loved his wife and didn't want to get a divorce. And so he thought that that was probably a good idea. Everyone who knew the couple, including the neighbor, seemed to agree on was that whoever Susan's killer was, it certainly was not John Hamilton. Susan Johnston said he just couldn't have done it. He was so kind, and you never heard him raise his voice or anything like that. Investigators had plenty of theories to work with, but before that, Valentine's Day was over, they would have a suspect in custody, a name that would shock everybody. Whoever killed her had cracked her skull open with an object never found and bashed her face into the bathroom tile. Two men's ties were tightly knotted around her neck. The scene was a bloody mess, and there were no footprints leading out of the house. Shouldn't the killer have left a trace? Well, Randy Scott said there's no burglary prints to obtain downstairs. There's no tracks that run out through the creek bed behind the house. Soon after arrival, the investigators started questioning Dr. Hamilton himself. 
by then, there'd been that neighbor's tip about problems in the Hamilton marriage from Susan, the next-door neighbor. The doctor's behavior in the minutes after finding Susan dead seemed off. This is why he thought so. So Hamilton had told the 911 operator that he was performing CPR. But when the first... Okay, this is this one's a little... Because I know how you're actually supposed to do CPR. So when the first responder got there, a firefighter named David Bradbury, when he arrived on scene, he found the doctor actually performing chest compressions. However, so this is how he described what the doctor was doing when he was, quote, performing CPR. He says, quote, he had one hand on her chest one hand on her abdomen and he was pushing down on both of those hands individually. So those of you who don't know, who have never been CPR trained, so what you're supposed to do, put them together in front of you, lay one on top of the other and interlock your fingers. Keep your, if you're keeping your elbows straight, keep your fingers interlocked while you do compressions. And there's like a certain amount of compressions you're supposed to do and stuff like that. But what he saw was a man with his hands straight out, one in the center of the chest and one down on the abdomen pushing in. David Bradbury said, quote, he had one hand on her chest, one hand on her abdomen. The way that we are taught to do CPR, we interlock our hands. The palm goes on the center of the chest on the sternum, something in which Dr. Hamilton should have been well-versed in. Like, if he didn't know he was a doctor, he would think that this man had never done CPR before in his life. When the firefighter got there, the doctor had been doing compressions for like 10 minutes by then. And it is, it's very possible that he saw the firefighter arrive and stopped doing compressions and opened his arms, you know what I mean? And just placed them on her body. I guess he could have been fatigued. Maybe he didn't see what he thought he saw, is what I'm saying. I guess what this firefighter was insinuating was that he was faking giving her CPR. Detective Teresa Sterling says he was acting very upset he was he was apparently scraping his knuckles on the screen, the mesh mesh screen in the police car, and banging his head into the screen. So by that afternoon, police had taken him down to the station. They took his clothes off as evidence. They placed him in an interview room, and he was like there for hours and hours. Um, they were like taping him on surveillance. When left alone in the room, Hamilton seemed to be checking out his shoulder area. When they found fresh scratches on his hand and arms, did that explain maybe the business about the scraping his hands? Randy said that would cause a suspicion for us to wonder why he's wanting to scrape his hands up. Still, there was the doctor's seemingly solid alibi. Dr. Hamilton had said, I talked to the surgery nurse and she said the surgery before yours started 30 minutes late. I still had 15 or 20 minutes leeway in there, but because it was Valentine's Day, I wanted to give Susan her first Valentine's Day card. Start her day off right before she got busy with her meeting. And Susan's getting ready, you know, trying to get dressed. And we kissed. 
I gave her her Valentine's card. She went to the closet and got one and gave it to me. It is also stated that by Susan's daughter that Susan had threatened divorce in December, but decided against it and to go to therapy with John. This was just two months prior to the murder. As the detectives looked more closely into the doctor's timeline that day of surgery, they learned that the second surgery, originally scheduled for 9 a.m., hadn't actually started until 9.40 a.m. And why was it delayed? Because Dr. Hamilton was late. So Randy Scott says, I think the biggest part for us was trying to figure out how he could get there, spend time there, and get back to do the second surgery. As I look more closely into the doctor's timeline that morning, they saw a hole. So it's not a big hole. They learned that his his 930 surgery was pushed to 940. Okay, but that only gives him an extra 10 minutes. So... He still has to get home. He still has to get back. He still has to get her blood off of him. Yeah, exactly. And then, like, he's... And we're talking, like, the surgery begins at 940. This means that he has to take minutes to, like, gown and cap up, get scrubbed in, get, you know, like, get in there for surgery. That usually takes five to ten minutes alone. Mm -hmm. And that's for a good surgeon who's done that for years and years and years and knows their routine. So I'm just saying, I think we're pushing it a bit on the timeline for him. So late that Valentine's Day afternoon, they just went ahead and arrested John Hamilton. So he was jailed immediately. He was denied any bail. The case landed in the hands of Wes Lane, who was the district attorney who would try Dr. John Hamilton for the murder. Dennis Murphy says, until that Valentine Day morning, there was no anger issues, no histories, history of this guy hitting the switch or flipping out. And Wes Lane says nothing. Let's put it this way. Nothing that we could really present So, I mean, everyone that knew the couple was saying the same thing, that it just didn't make any sense for him to have killed her. Even Susan's children were standing by their stepfather. So here's a few things that I wrote down that contradicts other reports, I guess you would say. So there were some neighbors who reportedly uh, saw strange footprints in the yard the Hamilton's yard weeks before her death. What? Hold on. These are the weird little things that I found in other reports. Neighbors saw weird footprints in their yard. Neighbors? Like, yeah. what, what are you looking in my yard for? To know what's weird and what isn't. That's a that's strange. <laughs> Man, it's kind of strange. I mean... Think about it. Define weird to me. Does it look like a velociraptor? <laughs> weird don't footprint. Know. I don't know. Hello? I don't know what that means. How would you know that those weren't your neighbor's footprints? I don't know. How do you know? That's what I'm saying. How do you know what's weird? Like, So uh, the other thing that they found was, or I guess you could say the discrepancy that I found was in one report it said that There were no signs of any sort of break-in. The house, the windows, everything was intact. Like, it didn't look like there was forced entry or anything. But then in another report, one said that the responding police to the 911 call actually found the back sliding glass door open. 
Okay, and then her daughter said that she had threatened a divorce in December. Oh, shit. But she had decided against it and go to therapy with John instead. So this was two months prior to the murder. So over the next few months, though, with the help of some unique forensic evidence, the DA would put together a novel theory of just what happened between the husband and wife. Something maybe grimly fitting for a Valentine's Day. She was talking about leaving him. And so, of course, the motive was lost love. He didn't want her to leave him. So, believing that Susan Hamilton's threat of divorce was enough to make the doctor snap, prosecutors developed a theory that the couple had argued that morning after exchanging the cards, and that after that argument, he killed his wife. This is what they brought to court. The district attorney, Wes Lane, later told Primetime when he saw that his, this incredible woman was looking like she was leaving him, he lost it. December 2001, 10 months after the Valentine's Day killing of his wife, Susan, Dr. John Hamilton is being tried for her murder. Dennis Murphy said there were people that thought this guy was being sandbagged, railroaded. A very nice, innocent guy was facing a nightmare. Westlane said, yeah, I mean, I talked to everybody from the restaurant waitress that would wait on them on Saturday mornings and she was just a gasp that we could have charged John Hamilton because when she would see them at breakfast together all lovey-dovey so yeah there was just a vast amount of opposition and grand skepticism Westlane said he knew that she was still considering divorce when she was murdered something happened in that bathroom that absolutely triggered him which is when he grabbed the ties and he then surprised her and in his rage did all the rest of the work. Susan, as it turns out, should also have left by 920 because she was supposed to meet a friend at 930. So she was apparently already dead by 930 and he was supposed to be back doing his next surgery at 940. So apparently when she was discovered, she was still undressed from her shower and her hair was still wet. And here's another thing. Um, so they had found a wet rag left in the pool of blood where it looked like somebody had started or attempted to try to clean it up and then just like completely abandon that. Okay. So they attempted to strangle her with two different neckties that were both left on her and then something was grabbed and hit her, knocked her over the head a couple times, actually, because she was, quote, unrecognizable. And, and the murder weapon was never found. And they don't even know, like, they don't even know what, what was missing from the house. Because the doctor was like, well, I don't necessarily see anything missing that could have been used to kill her. Now, granted, if he had done it, he wouldn't give up his own murder weapon, but still... Why are you my ex-husband and you're worried about whether I'm okay or not at my new husband's abortion clinic? Like, I'm not saying that they split on bad terms because people can, people, a lot of times people get along better after they get divorced. And there's not that pressure to be that person that they're not for that other person. If it's wrong, it's wrong. That doesn't mean you hate someone. But I'm kind of glad you brought him up. So he was actually the person that came over to look through her... Um, closet to get something for her to wear for her funeral and he claims that he found 
jewelry in her underwear drawer. And then he says that he finds jewelry in there that he thinks was, quote, hidden there to make it look like a a robbery. Wait, what? To make it look like that jewelry was stolen during the murder. It's the ex-husband he still cares, but he's distant yet close enough to be the gopher. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, nothing really came from that. Next, they hired a bloodstain expert named Ross Gardner. Gardner carefully examined everything the doctor had been wearing that morning. A lot of the blood on his clothing could be explained by his attempt to administer CPR. But the expert looked at John's shoes, the left one in particular. The shoes were found near Susan's body. John said that they fell off his feet as he was attempting to revive her. The expert, though, Gardner, was certain that whoever was wearing that left shoe that day was present when Susan was being bludgeoned also. They found blood in the in the doctor's car. Apparently they found her blood Ooh. in the doctor's car on the steering wheel. However, he got in his car when when he called 911 as soon as that firefighter came and like took over CPR for him. He got up and moved his car out of the way for the ambulance. Oh, okay. And then they said, well, we found hair. We found her hair in the car as well. The defense brought in their own uh, blood evidence expert, which is, it's not uncommon for you to have two experts, you know, one to refute the other, whatever. So they brought in one named Tom Bevel, who apparently had three decades with Oklahoma City PD. And he'd even mentored the blood expert that was used by the prosecution. So Bevel was the last witness in this trial. And from everything he testified to under the defense attorney's general questioning, uh, had helped Dr. Hamilton to this point. Then the prosecutor rose for cross-examination. The prosecutor tossed out an open-ended question. Well, Mr. Bevel, is there anything that the state experts of Oklahoma City Police Department missed in their examination of the evidence? The blood spatter expert on the stand, on the payroll of the defense, something he noted and what would later be regarded as the atomic bomb of the trial of Dr. John Hamilton. It was about that bloody shirt taken from the doctor. He said... In my examination, I found additional blood that was not talked about anywhere on the inside of the right cuff. Westlane said that's when he started explaining that the blood spatter inside the sleeve, the only thing he could think of with it being consistent of was with John Hamilton if he had beat his wife to death with a blunt instrument. So where it was found, the lifting effect of uh, the hand, like let's say you have two hands on a murder weapon and you lift it above your head and you hit your wife and you bring it back up and it has blood on it now he's saying that that secondary blood ran down into the sleeve off the weapon down like cast off going into his sleeve yes okay and and this is the thing because this like shocked everybody on redirect, Dr. Hamilton's lawyer tried to defuse the bombshell testimony, but his argument would not be enough. It took the jurors just two hours to reach their verdict. The doctor realized he'd been scuttled by his own man. So his own expert got him convicted. 
Two weeks later, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. The doctor was still in shock as the judge added his own opinion. He said, based upon the comments and majority of the jurors said to me, in which they indicated they were very disappointed they didn't have the sentence of death as an option, you should consider yourself very lucky. John Hamilton said, after all of this, he said, I don't have anything to lose. If I really did it, if it would even clear my conscience, I would admit it. But I didn't do it. I didn't kill Susan. Today, John Hamilton still resides in a maximum security prison. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?